If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. So flying commercial as a professional athlete and a professional athlete for many of these ladies who are, you know, 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", 6'1", 6'2". How do you stay fresh and where where do you sit? Like, how does that work? Do they block off a large portion of the cabin? Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, that works that I could be 12A and Jason, you could be 12B. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how it works. <laughs> Today, we had the third and likely final fight of the biggest heavyweight boxing trilogy uh, of recent times on Saturday, Wilder versus Fury. Yes, sir. Tyson Fury knocked out Deontay Wilder in the 11th round with a mule-kicking right hook. You can analyze the fight all day, but let's talk about this. Boxing has been uh, playing catch-up to MMA, particularly the UFC now, for the last two decades. Much of that coming from... The lack of a kind of all-encompassing star a la Mike Tyson. Uh, Wilder Fury certainly has brought back big interest into boxing, but do we think that it would have been better for boxing if Deontay Wilder won, bringing another American heavyweight to the pinnacle of, of popularity, instead of the very charming Gypsy King uh, Tyson Fury? Uh, listen, I was there for Deontay. I'm going to just say that. Yeah. Like that's, that's why I was yeah. there. I, you know, it's, it was a great fight though. I just, you have to like, boxing has been very controversial lately for so many reasons. Jake Paul being one of the 99 of the 100 reasons, but it's controversial because a lot of people are like, do we want the celebrity boxing? That's not real boxing. Or do we want yeah. the real heavyweight? Give up people what you want. Okay. Give the people what you want. Is that Gallagher too? Yeah, that is Gallagher. I'm showing right now a picture of myself and Jason Gallagher at the Emmys, uh, winning an Emmy, standing with Deontay Wilder, who is making me look like a hobbit. Uh, <laughs> and he was a fantastic, he was a really super nice guy and really cool to meet. He was just back there. And you barely I made the I was reading photo. for him as well. You're right. You barely made the cut of the photo. I guess, he, you know, he, <laughs> I did see that. They listed him at 6'6", six, six, I believe. So yes, understandable that I wouldn't have made the photo either at his height. But to that point, Deontay Wilder is like a, a personality that you want to find more of. And in boxing, MMA, UFC, that's what sells their fights. It's the, yeah. what's your personality? How loud can you yell at each other? Do we like what you're saying? Is the trash talking there? And then can one of y'all knock each other out? Yes. So as I was watching that fight, I think they gave us the heavy hitter, you know, heavyweight, what the people want. But, I, you know, as far as boxing is concerned, am I going to watch Tyson Fury next fight if he fights against Joe Smo that I don't know? <laughs> I don't know. So I would have to say I'm in the casual fan <laughs> of boxing. So I, I'm Same. just going to call it because, you know, there's casual basketball fans that don't know a lot, but they're talking a lot. So I'm a part of the casual boxing fan group where I was there for the personality and not necessarily the sport. And it was Deontay Wilder going against Fury, the trilogy. I was here for it. Yeah, I, I will say 
you know, Dana White, I think very smartly uh, modeled a lot of the way that the UFC presents itself around WWE and wrestling and Vince McMahon. It was a huge inspiration and influence there. Uh, but, you know, I agree with you to an extent, but like Tyson Fury, he has a kind of gift of gab as some of like the post fight videos showed in which he was, you know, saying this and that about Deontay, about not, you know, not being a class act and congratulate him, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. I think to me, as much a part of the problem of why like boxing can't break through is there hasn't been that person, that boxer who has that like turn out the lights oh my God, did you see that kind of power? The thing about Mike Tyson when he ruled the sport was like, as a casual fan myself, you didn't have to know anything about boxing to be like, whoa, what was that? Like, this fight went to the 11th round. Uh, there was an early knockdown. But there wasn't that feeling of, in a moment, everything can just shift and change and oh my god this like this person could just get knocked down in a second there hasn't been that person since mike tyson and i think with just the way the media landscape is with the way that people find sports the, the kind of like importance of highlights whether they're shared on espn or social media i think you kind of need that one punch holy shit person and wilder's rise was fueled in large part because he had that like mega stopping power where if he connects on that punch like it's over and the reason we got three versions of these fights despite the fact that it every single fight it seemed like fury was never gonna lose and 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 wilder was having trouble like breaking through this like jungle thicket of like arms is the fact that you know wilder on his ascent was this guy who had that like one punch stopping power. And that's kind of the thing that boxing has been like searching for post Tyson. So I think that until somebody with that kind of ability to capture the imagination of people like us casuals who just are checking in to see something crazy until that happens, there's not going to be that one person who takes boxing to the summit. And I don't think it's, I, I also don't think it's going to be Tyson Fury. Any of the middleweight, especially like the Latino, particularly Mexican fighters, it's a particular style. You know, anybody that was potentially going to fight Pacquiao, I was interested in. And, you know, in Filipino and Mexican culture, boxing is absolutely huge. That said, I think part of the thing with, you know, this conversation about like who can break through and who can lift boxing to that kind of... The, the storied heights that it once occupied when the likes of Tyson or Ali and various other people were fighting. I think, again, the difference is, one, you're talking about a lot of, of athletes who are not American. And two, you don't see a lot of knockout power from the middleweights. It's great if you want to learn about boxing and learn about different styles of boxing and gain an appreciation for how much for the kind of like Mexican fight culture and what it means – um, but it's not like it's not like highlight stuff. It's not the kind of stuff that you're going to see on like a social media feed that is like, oh, my God, look at this, at least for the general audience. Yeah, I can see that. 
you know, I think that there is something to be said about an American star at the center of it to capture the kind of like American market. And, I, it, you know, the Klitschko's had all the time to do it. Lennox Lewis had all the time to do it. And I just think it for it to break through here, it has to be an American boxer. And I, I don't think Tyson Fury is that person. All respect to him. He, he fought an amazing, amazing bout. The other thing is, it's like weird. You tell me, Renee. Is it weird when you see like a boxer with a huge gut? You know uh, what I mean? Like they're kind of like the jelly water roll. Water weight. <laughs> we already talked about this before with Patrick yes. Mahomes and his water belly. It's a thing. I don't necessarily look, and I'm not claiming Tyson Fury's was a water belly, but I like to give athletes that grace in case we have to stay hydrated a gallon a day. Yes. So to answer your question. I, you know, it's difficult because when you look at an athlete, you look at them to be different than you. I think that's what people yeah, like. Like, right. wow, that athlete can jump so high. Wow, that athlete can run so fast. Wow, that athlete is in shape. He looks like an action yeah. figure. I mean, look at Deontay Wilder. It was like, goodness. That man yeah, looks, he looks like, like a superhero. Z- yeah, like literally an action figure that you could buy in the store. I do think there's something there to it in a sense of when I was watching the fight, I kept looking and I kept thinking that Wilder should be able to win this fight. And it was like every time that he could, like his, he was just fighting an uphill battle. And yeah. when you look at Tyson Fury physically and you look at him, it looks like that's what should happen. So I do think there's a barrier there, Jason, that if you see somebody that's not in necessarily physically, it doesn't look like they're in the best shape in the world. I think that that's hard for people to gravitate to being like this monster. I mean, look at Nikolai Jokic. I agree. He's our MVP in the NBA. And if you ask a lot of people, you know, like, what is it about him that makes you not believe it's the same? I mean, listen, he's a deserving MVP, but I think you're exactly right. We want these athletes. We want to be like, Oh yeah, there's a hundred. That's the reason why I could never even dream about being elite because this person's like a totally different species than me. And then, you know, and there is a weirdness to it when you see somebody like Jokic or Tyson Fury, and you're like, okay, but my I kind of have flab like that. Like, why is this again? Although (laughs) I will say, I think part of what makes Fury so effective is that he leans that mass on Wilder the whole fight and just grinds him down, grinds him down. Deontay could barely stand up. He was so tired from carrying this big body around the ring the whole time. It's just that those arms are up on his shoulders and that yeah. belly is on him and he's leaning on him on the on the and ropes it's all and it's legal. just a lot. And yes. it's all legal. It's just I know that that I know that Deontay Wilder was probably like, I'm tired, boss. At the end of that fight, <laughs> other than being knocked out, imagine carrying around that much weight for I don't care. Eleven rounds that like literally there were times where he literally had to take a knee. Like he went down on a knee because he's like, I can't carry this weight no more. Like that is that is crazy, but I will say, though, there were a lot of people entertained, and I always like like to say this because when people talk about boxing is dead and this and that, the numbers in the Twitterverse, if that matters, because I always go yes. like to go on Twitter to kind of see the temperature, who's watching what and who's not. 
And so I was on a plane. I was on a flight back from the Memphis game. I called the Hawks at Memphis. It was a preseason game. Literally no one played. The Memphis Grizzlies had eight players out, including their starting five, their starting six, their starting seven. So none of their like heavy hitters had played, and they had earned that right because they were 2-0 and and they were killing it. So on the way back, I was on the plane. I got to see the first seven, eight rounds maybe. So I missed the knockout. But boy, oh boy, were people talking about it, um, which is a big deal because we know that you get paid per view. So I mean, it's huge. Good for them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, yeah, I all of which is to say, I think, and this sounds like a completely like American centric thing that a lot of people will hate. And I agree that it's hateable, but I do think it would be, quote, better for the sport had a wilder one. I, I just, I agree. I just, it's more marketable. I know people don't more want to hear guy. that. They don't want to hear that. People probably don't want to hear that because obviously the best man won. We could tell throughout the fight that the best yes, fight was better the whole time. The fight. Now, would I have been excited to see the next fight then decide who was the ultimate champion? Yes. Or would I be excited to see another Deontay fight after this? Of course, because that's that's the personality I'm following the same way. All the fans follow LeBron James from the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Miami Heat, back to the Cavaliers, and now they are Lakers fans. It's just, it's a reality now of how people watch sports. I think boxing is the individualized sport anyway, so you watch for the particular person a that's lot correct. of times, more times than not. So, yeah, I do think that had Deontay won, it would have been way more exciting for me and a lot of other fans because he's ours. I think you nailed it, too, with people following personalities. It's like part of part of the effect of the rise of of UFC and MMA is the fact that like there's not all these people would be in a lot of these athletes would be going into the boxing. You know, they would be in the boxing ring had it not been for the rise of UFC, MMA and the various uh, tournaments and leagues that are out there. Um, And it's just a drain on talent. So uh, in terms of like will boxing uh, breakthrough, this is a big money making thing for them, but it just feels like they go fight to fight and it depends on who is in the fight. Congratulations to Tyson Fury. I was rooting for Wilder. He didn't get it done. (laughs) Facts. You're never far from race and racial issues, particularly in the South. And sometimes there's little reminders out there for you. Uh, When I first got the job the day after, a gentleman came up to me and stuck his hand out. And I stuck my hand out to shake his hand and he said, hey, I just want you to know that I called the dean of students and I told him you weren't qualified for the job. To hear somebody say that, I mean, that kind of tells you, hey, that's what I think about you. That was the clip from the new documentary Scrum, which follows Queens University of Charlotte's rugby coach Frank McKinney through his season uh, as the coach of that team, his experience building a championship from scratch and being one of the first black college rugby coaches in the U.S. Coach McKinney joins us now. Uh, Coach, welcome to Take Line. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, Coach, welcome. And, you know, in three years, you took a non-existent rugby program 
at Queens University to a national championship. So how close or perhaps how far was your timeline? Like, did you did you expect to achieve that certain level of success that fast? Like, what was your thought process going in? I'm going to be honest. Uh, when I started, national championship was never one of my goals. So in rugby, you need 15 guys uh, to be on the field. So my, my, my short-term goal was to get 15 players so I could field a team. Um, the school is 60-plus percent women, um, so I can't really go out wow. and, and pick up players. So for me, the goal is just to get a team on the field. In the doc, you talk a lot about the kind of pressure that you felt in this experiment at Queens College with rugby and specifically with yourself as the coach of this team. How do you deal with that pressure and how do you resist that pressure? And what kind of microscope did you feel yourself under? So there's two, probably there's two different things to, to look at. And you'll see this in the documentary. One, I'm the only male African-American coach at the school. There's 32 sports and I'm the only male African-American uh, coach. The other thing is in the rugby community, I don't think there's very many. If, if there's two or three, I, I'd be shocked, but I'm one of the only African-American male coaches. So with both of those, as I step on the field and as I step on uh, the campus, for me, I've got to make sure that the standards are higher. And that's because, you know, when, when I look at that, uh, being an African-American, you know, I want more coaches, uh, not only just in rugby, but coaches at the school and coaches in the U.S. I love it. So you talked about it a lot. You said you're one of the only African-American men that are coaching in that school. And so we're going to talk more about your team, but we also love to hear about you specifically, like, how does a, a black man get involved in rugby at first? Because it's just not necessarily a sport that you see black men in. You don't. You don't. So what, what happened to me is I had an interesting journey into rugby. I played a lot of sports as a kid. And then uh, my dad was a big baseball player and a big football player. And that was his dream. And my dad went out to sea. Uh, and when he went out to sea, he was in the Navy. My mom got me in soccer at five years old. So I played soccer. And I tried to play some other sports, but soccer ends up taking over whenever you get when you get decent at a sport. Um, so my goal was to play soccer in college. So I had a college that was interested in me. I showed up and I didn't do any of the offseason workouts. I showed up. I was out of shape. Uh, and what happened was I ended up <laughs> not playing soccer that season. And I ended up finding these rugby guys and ended up playing rugby in undergrad. Fast forward, I was a captain and then the actual president of the club. And then I ended up playing in a men's league. And I ended up playing in a semi-pro league. And fell in love with the game. But I'm going to be honest, when I played in the men's league, I rarely saw people of color. And I'm not just saying African-American. I am saying Asian, Latino, you name it. I didn't see it. Uh, yeah. um, so when you did see somebody like that, you were like, hey, <laughs> want to go? Hey, we're friends. Um, but I had this goal and dream <laughs> of, of getting people of color, uh, not just only African-American, but, but people from all over the world, people from different mm -hmm. socioeconomic backgrounds to play rugby and, and play on, on a team. And have one common goal. If it was reversed and there was a white coach uh, coaching a predominantly uh, African-American team, nobody would ask the question, how do you relate to your players, right? But did you feel that, like, uh, question from the people that, you know, that were around the team? Like, how is how is the coach going to relate to players as one of the only African-American coaches in rugby and one of the only male coaches at the college? Like, was that a concern? And did you feel that? And how did you try to diffuse that question from people? Yeah, I think if you, you know, I, I, like I tell my players, you need to be game tight, right? If you're game tight, if you have lesson plans together, 
you're running the right practices, if you're running the right travel plans, players have all the meals and everything's, everything's sorted out. And we don't ever talk about color. We, we honestly never talk about color. My goal is that when the players look at their teammates, they never have to think about color. They look at what their body of work has been to get on the field. And it's the same thing with coaching. Um, and that's a goal for, for myself is to say, hey, that's what I want. And I bring in assistant coaches. I've got a diverse uh, uh, assistant coach pool um, that we actually bring in. So for me, diversity all around, because I think that's, that's our strength. When you watch the movie, when you see our team play, our diversity, I think, is our biggest strength. No, you know, you talk about being game tight, and I couldn't agree more. There's nothing players care about more than knowing you know what you're doing. You have everything under <laughs> yeah. control. <laughs> but we know there's certain things in the sports you can't control. So kind of to follow up on that, what were your facility conditions like? <laughs> like, what did your athletes respond to that? Like, what? Because that's something you can be game tight and you can control that. But other stuff like that, like, what was that like there? So uh, some of the some of the facilities and some of the access we have are the same as some other teams. Uh, what you'll see in the movies, we actually practice on a playground. And the playground is actually next to the actual school. Um, just about all the other teams practice on a, a turf facility that has locker rooms and has a lot of uh, accoutrements, uh, a, lot, a lot of different things accessed. Um, what's funny is we have always practiced on the playground. And to me, it's almost put a chip on my shoulder. Um, but I don't think the players see it as a playground because when we have the cones and the pads, and the lesson plan, and they step on the field, and we start getting into it, I don't think they see it as a playground. And that's just the experience that we've kind of set for the players. Um, but it is different than what the other teams practice on. Crazy. There's a moment in the stock where you, uh, you're you working with your players, and then you say, okay, uh, we ran uh, this drill, and you ask them to be accountable for their own uh, you know, lack of success in that particular drill if they felt that. And you say, I, I know I didn't go all out in that. And then you start uh, doing push-ups or what have you. How how important is that in your particular coaching style to ask players to assess whether they have been giving everything? Like, is that an important strategy from for the way you approach this? I used to practice with the players. So I would, I would do the push-ups. I would do sit-ups. I would do some of the stuff that they would do. And what happened was we were, it was a preseason – and preseason is brutal. It's, it's, uh, it's two days. It's 6 a.m. mornings. Uh, it's brutal. But what happened during the session is I felt like I didn't get all my push-ups done and I didn't do all my bodyweight squats. And I felt like some of the players had tapped out. And my whole thing, the message I was sending to the players is there's no shortcuts in life. You got to get up and grind every day. So as the coach, I've got to show them that, hey, I might have skipped some steps in that because I was tired or I didn't like the quality of my push-ups. So I want to show them, hey, I'm going to do it. And that's when I told all the players, hey, we're going to do it together. And I said, you're going to let your coach do push-ups by himself. So everybody gets down, the <laughs> down. The assistant coach is kind of looking at me like, man, he's crazy. I don't, I don't think I'm, uh, I'm not going to, the assistant coach is going to go, I'm not going to get on and do some push-ups. I'm going to let, I'm going to let coach Fred do the push-ups. <laughs> I get down, do the push-ups. Uh, the whole team does. We do some body weight squats. Assistant coaches didn't do them, but I, I did them. <laughs> um, and we knocked it out, but it was a, it was a life lesson. And it was, it was something caught on film that I didn't even think about. Um, it's just a message that I'm always giving the players. We got to wake up every day and you can't skip steps. No, it's true. And I always remember when the coaches get in the drills, that's the worst. It's the worst when y'all do that because 
Now you don't want to be that person that lets the coach do better than you. And now the coach is like, look, if I can do it, you can do it too. And, you know, like, so I don't like when the coach is getting the drills, but I do like the motivation behind it. And look, you've walked the walk and talked to talk. You've won a national championship, so you've done your job. And this might not be necessarily your job, but do you do you see rugby becoming that diverse sport that we see more in America? Do you see that going there? You know, like there's a film out now and, and a lot of people may not know, but do you feel that we could get there as rugby as a sport becoming more diverse in America? So Renee, let me answer your first question. You talked about the coaches getting in the drills. I've gotten to, <laughs> I've gotten to a point in my life where I've realized that these guys are training to be good and I'm not really training to be good. So what I do is I've hopped out of the drills. <laughs> I don't get in the drills. I don't, I, don't, I don't get in the drills anymore. I sit my old butt over on the sideline. And I <laughs> thank thought, you. Yeah, yeah, I, Renee, great, great call out. So I don't do that anymore. Um, what, what I would tell you about the diversity in rugby in the U.S., like um, to me, I, I want it to be diverse. And I think it starts with what we do in my program. And that's the only thing I can control. I can control what, I, what my program does. I can't control what other programs do. But I feel like if people see African-American coach walking out in the field, if they see a diverse team and kids that are Caucasian and African-American and Latino, if they're seeing that, then all of a sudden they're going to be like, well, we should have a more diverse team. And if there's more access to rugby in different cities and more teams are created and then people see coaches and say, hey, I'm hurt now or I can't play anymore. So now I want to get into coaching. And if we can give more opportunities to people of all different backgrounds, all different races, then the chance for it to be uh, more of a diverse sport is is big. And if you research U.S. rugby, um, you know, we're, we're probably 13, 14, 15 in the U.S. And the top teams are historically New Zealand, South Africa, England, uh, yeah. Australia, teams like that. And we have a large gap to catch up with them. Um, and that's, I think, something that's going to push the sport to be diverse. Sell us on rugby for those who are not into the magic of the sport that we want to grow this sport of the U S we want to see it become more diverse. Part of that is making it more popular coach. Sell us on the magic and the majesty of rugby. What is great about it? Yeah. So I will tell you, it's uh, it's like gladiators. It's, it's like the football team takes off their pads, takes off their helmets, takes off all that stuff on. And the only thing they've got is either some tape uh, you know, and then they've got to run the ball over the actual line to score, just like you would do in football, but there's no blocking, right? So it's more of a chess game. Wow. 15 aside rugby to me is a chess game. So if you like big hits, if you like fast action, tough guys, if you watch soccer and guys take 10 minutes after they're hurt and they're like, my leg, my leg, I can't walk again. <laughs> then they get the car, the other guy gets the card and he gets up and walks again. And you're like, what are you doing? When you watch rugby, the guys are trying not to stay down because they want to get back in the play and play. So if you like tough sports, fast sports, um, rugby is your sport. I like that. That got me turned up. The film is called Scrum. It's available to stream now at scrummovie.com. Coach, good luck on your season, and thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Be on the lookout for the movie. Be on the lookout for our team. And just thank you guys for having me. Awesome. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Coach. Thank you.
All right, so Jason, the WNBA Finals is here, baby. I was turned up, couldn't wait because this mm-hmm. is one of the more star-studded games you can have. So in game one this weekend, the Chicago Sky took down the Phoenix Mercury 91-77. to 77. Yeah. The Sky were pretty much in control the whole game. At a certain point, they were up by 20 points, and the Mercury had just came off of a tough five-game semifinal series. Only had two days rest before they had to jump into the finals, which... Again, this is the WNBA probably needing to add more of a grace period in between rounds, but that's where we are right now. Um, Candace Parker is returning home, and that is one of the biggest stories right now because she's a Chicago native, been playing with the Sparks her whole career. This is her first year going in her homecoming, and she took her team to the finals. And then you have the former Husky, which was named the GOAT by the WNBA for the W25 season. Diana Taurasi, she's been playing at an unreal level. So let me give you a little timeline for Diana. Clinched the finals. The next morning, has a daughter. And then the next day after that, starts the WNBA finals. So she's had herself a a roller coaster of a few days. Um, It could be the final games for both of them. That's conversation being talked about. Neither one of them have confirmed Mm -hmm. that. But that's just everyone speculating. So let's get into it. What are your thoughts? So Diana said during the game in which they got handled, which included a sky like 17-0 run, copper running wild, said <laughs> that we're not tired. We're just getting our asses kicked right now. She, You have to say that, right? That's a thing you yeah. have to say. But also they do look – they look tired. They, they're getting run. Rotations are a little slower. Everything looks a little slower. The energy gap looks completely different. You mentioned the amount of things that Diana Taurasi has dealt with over the last, like, 10 days. Um, But they do look, they look tired. Uh, It was, wanted a closer game, but it was was an absolutely dominant performance. Yeah, and you know, it needs to be said, too, that with the Phoenix Mercury, they recently lost Kia Nurse to Mm an ACL. She tore ACL. Um, they they don't have Sophie Cunningham playing right, right. now, but she everyone was big knows off the bench for them. Yeah, but everyone knows when you get to the finals, it's almost that everyone's hurt. There's no excuses. That's kind of how it is. But to that point, I am very interested to see what happens on Wednesday because we talked about it. Phoenix went to a game five. We know that Chicago clinched in four games, and right after their game, they flew out to the West Coast. So they flew to Vegas to wait to see who was going to win the Vegas and Phoenix matchup. So they already got the long travel out the way because in the WNBA, we fly commercial. But Commissioner Kathy Engelbert actually said that we're going to be flying private for the finals. So that's a beautiful step in the right direction because that travel is brutal. You know, like I talked about earlier, I was on a flight from Memphis back to Atlanta with the Hawks. And as you know, that's a private flight. And I was like, whoa, child, the wealth. You know, it was nice to get back home the night of the game. It makes such a huge difference to where you don't have to wake up for the first flight out in the morning where you don't really get any rest. So I love seeing that the finals are going to have a charter flight. So flying commercial as a professional athlete and a professional athlete for many of these ladies who are, you know, 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", 6'1", 6'2", how do you stay fresh and where where do you sit? Like, how does that work? Do they block off a large portion of the cabin? Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, that works that I could be 12A and Jason, you could be 12B. So that's, that's kind of how it works in a sense of there's not blocked out. You know, with the new CBA, there were certain things like we have to get Delta Comfort Plus when available, exit rows when available. But before this past CBA, 
you and I mean you said it nicely. Most of the players, I think the average height is six one, six two. So I was st- like me listed at five seven. I was one of the more comfortable ones, but they call me tiny. So that's like I'm tiny for the <laughs> WBA. They call me itty bitty little bit. So I fit comfortably, but a lot of my teammates, it was a struggle. And not even to mention just the travel schedules. You're at the mercy of the airline. So you could get delayed for four hours. You could have weather conditions that cancel your flight. And now we are at the airport for an extended amount of time waiting on our next flight to get booked. I've seen it all. And that's the tough part. So I was really happy to see that the WNBA made the commitment that traveling won't be a factor in the finals, which it shouldn't be. You should have everything yes. you need and play at the best of your ability. So it's exciting. And this is like we talked about, this is one of the uh, one of the more star-studded games when you have a Phoenix Mercury team that has Skylar Diggins, Dinah Taurasi, mm-hmm. Brittany Griner. And then on the other side, you have Candace Parker, who bring, is bringing out the whole city. Um, it's exciting for the WNBA. Uh, Coach Brandello said after the game, I don't want to make excuses, but we're fatigued. When you're tired, it's like your brain goes a bit dead and you're just trying to survive out there. Again, they just look tired. It was unfortunate, but they just looked like they were gassed. Um, I can't imagine flying commercial and then being like, okay, let's go. Listen, now it's time. We've to be gone in the straight to the gyms before. I've taken four hour, five hour flights. We go straight to the gym from the airport, get a practice in and then kind of just like decompress afterwards. So it's, it's, it's tough. You know, it's like, that's, that's the part where a lot of people, they don't realize that to see the level of performance you see from WNBA yes. players, despite everything else that we have to kind of compartmentalize, you have to, like you heard even Diana Taurasi, she's trying to tell us and tell herself at the same time, yeah, we're not tired. Yes, you are. I'm sure you're <laughs> tired. You shouldn't say you're tired. I'll say it for you. I'm sure that things are tiring. Just in general, everybody's tired after a long season. The NBA players, even after they take private flights, uh, I'm sure they're tired. But when you have energy players like a Kalia Copper, who that is her thing, her energy is her. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I didn't just wake up and get excited when I retired. A lot of people may not know because they, a lot of people didn't know me as a player. But as a player, energy is something that I can control. I couldn't control my height, my speed, how high I could jump. Yeah. But one thing I always knew I could control was my attitude, knowing my plays, knowing my scout, and bringing the energy. So for me, that's when things like that, it's like, all right, I know I just got off of this flight, but let's head them up, move them out. So that's that's where it comes into play. But like I said, Chicago Sky, led by Allie Quigley, Courtney Vandersloot, who were the two players that returned from the 2014 finals appearance. Yeah. And then you add on Kalia Copper, Candace Parker. That's a strong-looking team, boy. Renee, let me ask you this. You know, as as many WNBA athletes do, they will go play overseas in the offseason. How much downtime would you actually have before you went to Maccabi or, oh, you know, the, let me tell you, Jason. Australia or Russia? Like, how much, how much time would you actually have to get it together before you have to go over there and then play a whole other season? Listen, they write it in your contract in ink two weeks after it, it varies, you know, so but I always had a minimum of two weeks after your last game. So that doesn't mean your last series. That means that if your game ended today, you are on the clock 14 days from now. You have to be in the country that that's so for 10 years straight. I had about a week and a half in between each season. So we usually get oh, off man. about three weeks per year. And that's why I was I actually made a mistake yesterday. So 
the game got delayed, as we know, like the Monday night football game got delayed due to storms and everything. And I tweeted yep. out like, are y'all going to finish and watch the rest of the game? Um, because it's a school night, basically. And everybody was like, ah, who's going to tell her? No one's working tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot that like when you're not an athlete, you have holidays. Like yeah. we don't have I don't think people realize for 10 years I was overseas during Thanksgiving, Halloween. Like we don't have holidays. Like so I get so used to not acknowledging holidays that like when I'm like talking to people and they're like, oh, it's indigenous people day tomorrow. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm still working, but it's great. And let people know we're recording right now on indigenous people day, just so the people that I told. So I just forget sometimes that holidays are a thing. But to that point, (laughs) athletes deal with a lot, deal with not having holidays deal and WNBA players deal with not having ideal travel and still produce. That's the thing that I want people to understand about the WNBA when you're watching it. The excellence of play is there. And then think about everything that they had to overcome to play at that level. One more question that I got to ask. What's the better ending to this story? Is it Candace returning home and winning a championship in her hometown or the GOAT, Diana Taurasi, winning her fourth WNBA finals for the team she was drafted by and she already has three championships for, assuming that they both uh, retire after this season. Wow. I mean, that's <laughs> that is a tough question because that's exactly why these playoffs and these finals are so yeah. interesting. Neither player has alluded to the fact that they are going to retire. That's like that's us talk. You know, like we did it with yeah, Serena that's Williams. Right. We do it. Correct. So I'm just I'm just saying that out loud. But with that scenario. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Diane Taurasi just got the GOAT vote, which means in the first 25 years of the WNBA's existence, she is the greatest player of all time in those 25 years. That award just got given to her on the game one. Um, But then you got Candace Parker, who there's a storyline there as well where, you know, we know what happened with her when it came to the Olympics. She left L.A. to go home and play for her home city. Uh, we know what happened when LeBron did that and how the city turned up for him. I mean, Chance the Rapper was there at their home games. Yeah. Jesse Jackson, Scottie Pippen. I mean, they had the who's who was at their games. And it's and on the other side, Phoenix had the whole Phoenix Suns team. So Also, they're still producing. Like, it's not like, yeah, are they playing at the level that they were playing at like eight years ago? No. But are they still producing? Candace Parker had 16, 8, 3 assists, 2 steals, and 2 blocks in this game. Yeah, they're still both producing. And I think that's the thing. You know, Diana Taurasi always says, why can't old people dream too? And so it's, <laughs> I get it because I, I really do get it. I really don't know the answer to that. And I'm like trying to wait out because it's like if Diana Taurasi retires, that's got to be one of the biggest sports stories yes. known to man. So that's the biggest story ever. Like the GOAT, just named the GOAT, is retiring But I also think there's something to be said that a person navigates their own path. And we know that the Chicago Sky had a team that was ready and primed to get to where they are. And they had just one missing piece. We see that Candace was that piece. Mm -hmm. I think it has to be Donna Taurasi. I mean, it's just her career, what she's done, how things played off. I just told you the night after... They clinched the finals. She had a whole baby and then goes on to the finals. If she if if they win and she retires on a championship having been named GOAT and all of that, I just don't see how there's any bigger story in sports. You know what 
that sound means it is time for Buzzer Beaters, where we talk about the stories we didn't cover in our show this week because of time. Renee, do you want to go first, or would you like me to go first? I would love you to go first this week, Jason. I have a story that my Buzzer Beater, I think, is going to be of interest to you. Let's hear it. I'm ready. Let's go. Here we go. My Buzzer Beater is John Collins, early dunk of the year candidate (laughs) for... Last week, uh, obviously, the uh, N- the NBA preseason is ongoing. Knicks look great. Uh, and John Collins of the Atlanta Hawks put one all over the Cleveland Cavaliers. It, I mean, all over them. Yep. The entire team, the entire squad, the city of Cleveland, everybody. Listen, I like Jared Allen. I think he's... He's a really good player, really fun. He loves computers. I love that about him. <laughs> but he he got he got it put on his head and it was it was exhilarating. Oh my god. That is the buzzer beater. What a fantastic play from yes! John Collins. Who was head it. and shoulders above Mr. Allen. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. I love it, Jason. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, the question was asked to John, are you going to put it on a shirt? Because if people remember, John Collins, you know, put Joel Embiid on a poster, <laughs> then put Joel Embiid on a shirt of the poster and wore it to a press conference when Game 7 was over and they closed out the series. So we all know that John Collins is, is you know, a say-it-with-your-chest type. So people wanted to know, was he going to put Jared Allen on a poster on his shirt? And he said he, it's up to the people. So y'all need to tweet John Collins. <laughs> that's just what the man said. He said it's, it, he's going to give the people what they want, but he has to know that's what the people want. So if you want John Collins to start making shirts of every poster that he makes in the game of a player that he dunks on, just tweet him. You know what I'm saying? Just tweet John and let him know because that's what he's waiting to hear. I love that that was your buzzer beater, Jason. And mine this week, we're going to stay in the sports universe and I got to give a huge shout out to Twitter Sports. So as we talked about already, mm-hmm. the WNBA Finals started this Sunday. And on this Sunday during the finals, Twitter Sports aired a commercial with all of WNBA Twitter in it, led by Ari Chambers and her crew. There was Jasmine Baker in there, Justine Brown. There was a lot of people in there, the faces we know. She knows sports. We know all of them that was in there. And I just have to give them a shout out because there's not a lot of people investing in women. There's not a lot of new commercials about things involving women's sports. So to see a highly produced, and that's what I want to give a a shout out to, the highly produced, because people will throw a cheap production together in a hurry for women's (laughs) sports. I'm telling you, they'll try to figure it out. How can we make this happen with the least amount of money? I've seen plenty of those productions but the commercial that was put on by Twitter Sports for w, hashtag WNBA Twitter, you could tell there was money behind it. There was a thought process behind it. Shouts to Adina Jones pulling the ones and twos behind it. You could just tell it felt like a real commercial. And I was happy to see it. So shouts to Twitter Sports. Shouts to WNBA Twitter. We on, baby. We in there. Let's go. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Coming back soon. Check it out. Goodbye. Let's go. Take Line is a crooked media production. 
show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. 